Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are speaking with Dr. Catherine Ware about her new annotated edition of Dorothy Sayers' The Man Born to be King series of 12 radio plays broadcast and published 80 years ago during the Second World War. It is a fascinating conversation on the unique complexities and tensions of dramatizing the Gospels. We hope it will encourage everyone to pick up a copy of the plays for themselves, or at least to allow this conversation to lift the film of familiarity from the great and true story that is the Gospel. One of the things I've learned from regularly leading undergraduates through the biblical text is that all of us have unexamined imaginings of scriptural events. On the one hand, it is hard for us to picture biblical characters as real people. On the other, familiarity makes it hard for the gospel to shock us with grace and truth. The grand drama of the incarnation, passion, and resurrection are reduced to ideas that pass through us like ghosts. But it is the gift of imaginative makers, like poets and playwrights, to give substance to what might otherwise remain airy nothing. To borrow from Shakespeare, And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. The work of makers can help us recover our wonder at the story at the center of Christian faith. Many of us are familiar of the ways that C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien have done this through their tales of Narnia and Middle-earth, but less are familiar with the work of Dorothy Sayers. I only recently learned about Sayers' radio dramas, which were commissioned, performed, and published during World War II. In the series of plays, Sayers sought to retell the story, to give the gospel a local habitation and a name, in the language of ordinary people. The project began amid controversy, but eventually won over most of its critics, reaching over two million people who tuned in to the BBC broadcast. In her introduction to the plays, Dorothy Sayers writes, It is curious that people who are filled with horrified indignation whenever a cat kills a sparrow can hear that story of the killing of God told Sunday after Sunday and not experience any shock at all. Thus, these plays seek to make the familiar strange and to make the strange familiar, clothing stained glass characters with flesh. C.S. Lewis, a close friend of Sayers, would read the cycle of plays every year during Holy Week, and that sounds like a practice worth adopting. There is perhaps no one better to introduce us to the plays than our featured guest, Dr. Catherine Ware. Dr. Ware is the editor of the recently published Wade annotated edition of the plays, which gives us a glimpse of the backstory, the creative process, and the reception of the plays 80 years after their original publication. On this episode, I was joined by Laurel Kerner, professor of theater arts at Dort University, and we found the experience of reading the plays, listening to the radio adaptation, and talking with Dr. Ware altogether delightful. To that conversation, we now turn.
I'm joined now by two guests. The first is my guest co-host, Laurel Kerner, theater professor here at Dort. Laurel, thanks for hosting with me. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And our featured guest is Dr. Catherine Ware. We are talking to Dr. Ware about her new annotated edition of The Man Born to be King, 12 plays composed by Dorothy Sayers on the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, This edition comes 80 years after their original publication in 1943. Uh, But Dr. Ware, we're so thankful to you for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with Dorothy Sayers. Many of our listeners uh, will have heard of her, perhaps, or maybe not. Uh, Or maybe if they have heard of her, they associate her with the Inklings, that group of Mm -hmm. thinkers that included Lewis and Tolkien, Um, though I'm not sure she ever attended their meetings. Maybe you can clear that up Mm -hmm. for me. Uh, But she is one of the seven authors promoted by Wheaton's Wade Center, and this is the Wade Annotated Edition. So without giving us the full story, which I know you probably could, uh, what are some of the most important things that we should know about Dorothy Sayers? Sure. Well, uh, what I love about Sayers especially is that she, she wrote in all kinds of different genres. So she started out writing poetry, then she got into writing mystery novels. So some people know of her almost exclusively through her Lord Peter Whimsey mystery that's novels. That's right, yeah. And then she got into writing plays for the stage and the radio, and that's about this time that The Man Born to Be King came out, which we'll talk more about. Um, and then she ended up doing a lot of lecturing and um, speaking and, and writing for newspaper columns and that kind of thing through the, the 40s. Um, and then then she actually thanks to Charles Williams, who was one of the Inklings, got to know Dante, and then actually spent about the last 17 years of her life focusing almost exclusively on Dante. Um, but it's it, today, especially her her essays about Dante is what people um, mm-hmm. really still really value as far as scholarship um, with those. So, you know, she's involved in all kinds of things. And it gives me uh, a kind of excitement to think, ooh, even in midlife, I could take on a new genre, I could learn something new. You know, so I could take that from her. No, the Dante fascination. Um, mm. She has a translation, a, a well-known translation of right. the Divine Comedy, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She was the first to attempt uh, to keep the rhyme scheme in English. There actually weren't very many English translations um, before she did hers. Uh, it was kind of pioneering, and then it was a Penguin edition, meaning that it was like a, an edition they were hoping the masses would read, um, mm. and it really. Did that. Uh, we probably wouldn't care as much about Dante in the English speaking world today if it hadn't been for her and her wow. translation. Um, so there have been a number of translations into English since then. And so some of those perhaps are, are more favored today for other reasons. But um, as I said, a lot of her essays about her translations, her introductions are still really highly valued um, because of just the depth of how she got into the theology behind the poem and that kind of thing, too. So besides that translation of Dante and this man to be mm-hmm. born to be king, you mentioned the the Peter Whimsey books. Uh, what mm-hmm. are some other titles that people might know uh, that were written by Dorothy Sayers? Yeah, I would say the other one that is very popular at the moment is an essay called The Lost Tools of Learning, because it's a favorite of homeschoolers and classical educators. So there are a lot mm-hmm. of uh, um, parents who are reading that and teachers as an inspiration for how to design a curriculum. Um, in that kind of classical format. So a lot of, some people only know her through that and that's their sort of introduction to her. And then could you clear up the inkling question? So is she, oh, yes. should she be considered an inkling? Is she an inkling or is she just one of the she's seven? She's not an inkling, yeah. but she's often studied with them because she, 
um, her, her dates are 1893 to 1957. So she was writing just the same period. And I mentioned Charles Williams. Um, so thanks to him, she got into Dante, but also thanks to him earlier in the mid thirties, she got into writing plays. Um, I mean, she had written a play and then he recommended her to write the festival play for the Canterbury Cathedral. And so she ended up writing two, two plays, two different years for them, but he had written one. And then T.S. Eliot wrote Murder in the Cathedral. And then she wrote uh, The Zeal of Thy House the next year. So it was sort of thanks to him. But then in, uh, in 1943, just as she was finishing this book is when she got to know C.S. Lewis. Uh, and he became a very important friend for her uh, the last uh, two decades of her life. And they have a lot of letters between them. And they're a lot of fun. I think they really respected each other. They both had an interesting mix of, of um, scholarly work and more popular work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they kind of, I think that's partly why they're studied together because they were both kind of on this edge of kind of lay apologist sort of writings yeah. and some things, but also some fiction and also some scholarship and also, you know, a real variety. So they also had a great sense of humor. So they, you know, they're in their like, you know, fifties and sixties by this time they're getting to know each other. And, um, you know, there's just these fun letters they'd write about their cats and their chickens. And like, uh, she wrote him a whole letter in the style of the screw tape letters, um, related to these plays when they first got to know each other. And it's just fun. Yeah. So I really mm-hmm. recommend the letters, uh, between them. I, I, someone actually recently wrote a book called Dorothy and Jack that, uh, is an interesting look at their friendship. Um, so I recommend that. Um, but yes, but she is often studied with them. She also, uh, was very much influenced by GK Chesterton, just as many of the Inklings were. And so that's why she's grouped with them at the Wade Center. So those, so the four Inklings, Sayers, GK Chesterton, and George MacDonald, who also really influenced, uh, the Sayers, uh, <laughs> Yeah, for, for listeners, we will do our best to put links uh, to all of the books uh, that Doctor Ware mentions, uh, <laughs> so that you can chase chase those things down afterwards. I I thought it's interesting, you know, 1943. Obviously, that's in the middle of the Great War, World mm. War II, and so you think of some of the things that Lewis wrote as well that have that as the the wartime setting. Another thing yes. that's really delightful about uh, this edition uh, is the backstory that you share. Uh, surrounding a bit of controversy that these these plays were quite controversial. Uh, and so I wonder if you could right. uh, tell us a bit about that controversy and why mm-hmm. it was controversial and then the role that the controversy played in shaping the final form of these plays. Yes, absolutely. So that's so one of the really interesting things about these plays. And if there hadn't been a controversy, perhaps we wouldn't be reading them today. Uh, originally, they were commissioned by the BBC as a series of children's plays. And there was a, an early kind of rupture between Sayers and the children's department, um, just because of some feedback, which you can read my introduction, read about that. But um, but the more interesting controversy uh, happened later when they, they did a um, press release conference just before the first play was about to air. So this is December 1941. So they had a press conference and Sayers read some of the dialogue and she really wanted her characters to speak everyday English, you know, not just use um, words straight from the King James, for instance. And so she, you know, she had the scene where she has Matthew who has a Cockney accent. And so she was sort of doing this in the, in uh, kind of, you know, reading his, his parts. And, and so, you know, pressmen, they're, they're there to sell papers. So they jumped all over this and they're like, 
life of Christ plays in U.S. slang. Because they love <laughs> to blame any linguistic problems on the U.S. That's um, or like gangsterisms in life of Christ plays. And um, and so, you know, of course, some people are like, what? I can't believe this. This is so irreverent. This is so, mm. um, you know, this is such a problem. Why is the BBC doing this? And so um, these wonderful, you know, we can kind of picture the type of people, uh, you know, these wonderful conservative Christians called the Lord's Day Observance Society uh, created its letter writing campaign to protest. And so thousands of letters came to the BBC in protest and um, people, you know, not just like this, this sounds like a bad idea, but like, oh no, God is not going to bless our country if you leave this, let this be on the air. And, you know, like we're going to lose the war because God won't be pleased or, I mean, so even that kind of very theological kind of pushback. And uh, even one man wrote to the BBC to say that uh, that because these plays had been aired, that that Singapore fell during the war. Um, and so mm. that kind of thing was very serious. So, you know, people were taking this very seriously. So not only that, but just the, the general concern, will a novelist be able to treat the scripture in a mm. respectful way? I think that was maybe a broader concern too. Um, and so the first play was aired, but Christ was just a baby in the first play, of course. So it wasn't actually being portrayed by a human being. And, uh, cause that was also the concern. I mm. didn't say much about that, but prior to this, there were these blasphemy laws in the UK from the time of the reformation that, uh, for a long time prohibited the, um, anyone to actually portray a member of the Holy Trinity on stage and because it was like personification or idolatry. And so just before World War One, that law changed, but people still needed actually permission to have a stage mm. play where someone portrayed Jesus. So they would get around it by doing other things. Like that's why uh, nativity plays are such, are even now, still such a big part of British theater because it was a way to get around. No one had to mm. play Jesus. Um mm. And, or they would have, you know, just the disciples perhaps describing their interactions with Jesus, or there would be a voice from off stage or a, a shaft of light on the stage, um, which, uh, you know, I mean, you can see how it's a desire to be respectful, but it also theologically causes problems because then does that mean that Jesus is sort of this disembodied voice or right. just a kind of light and he's not a real human being? So Sayers really wanted that. So that's, I mean, but that was part of the controversy. That's people were, even though it was legal, there were still many people that felt like that was a bad idea and would be irreverent. And so coming up to play two, um, which was in in January of 1942, um, you know, there there was this whole committee of of people that were men, clergymen, who uh, read her scripts ahead of time to sort of, uh, you know, check them. For, for theology, but also just general piety. You know, will people be mm-hmm. shocked? And it, it actually turns out that the further they went along, the less comments that the um, the clergyman made because they actually really loved the plays and they were getting really into the story and, you know, mm-hmm. how is she going to write this? And, you know, they just, they trusted her um, the further they went along. So that's a good part of it. But that was, it was a big controversy. And, you know, it's like these plays almost didn't get on the air. But of course, the controversy brought a lot of press. And so then a lot of people uh, listened to them. And, you know, very within the first few plays, it was like, oh, these are clearly not just for children (laughs) anymore. And she's not like the first few plays, she includes a few child characters. 
to kind of like give the point of view of a child. So she kind of leaves some of those techniques behind because it was clear that it was such a big audience now um, of people of all ages who were really enjoying them. So we're talking about this kind of controversy and that part of it had to do with this representation of Christ. So uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit, you know, about what is this, what is this, the broader story of of the plays coming to be, the controversy surrounding them and Sayer's experience, you know, being kind of at the mercy of this committee and so on. What does it tell us about the nature of, of a kind of apprehension around representation or our fear, um, the power of theater, the power of, of story? It's that's a, such a good question. Um, radio was the main mass media of the day, right? People were getting all of their news from the radio. Um, they were hearing the war bulletins, um, mm. instructions for you know what what the new rules about you know their their food, <laughs> you know the rations and uh, transportation or things that were um, destroyed. They're worrying about family living further away. You know, who was their um, village? Um, hurt in the last bombing. I mean, all these kinds of things. It was just so central to their life, and um, and so whatever was on was what people were were listening to. I mean, so it was just the the centrality of radio was a big deal. Um, these plays um, were also a big deal. Uh, that I didn't mention this before, but that the BBC specifically uh, commissioned these, not just not only in in a way for children, but also with a real um, evangelistic goal, um, which we don't think of the BBC as doing uh, much evangelistic work these days. Um, But it was a big part of of what uh, Dr. James Welch, who was the head of religious broadcasting, what he cared about. So in his letters to Sayers, you know, he's saying like these, these plays will reach the heathen of this country, you know, people that would never, um, you know, read their Bible or go to church, they can encounter Christ this way. And maybe that will be the opening. Um, and Sayers loved that. I mean, she actually saw firsthand some of that. She got letters from people saying like, I'm a teacher and I had children coming to me with their Bible the next day saying, where can I find that story that was in last night's radio play? Mm. Um, it's beautiful. But, you know, the this uh, controversy, as you say, you know, it it was a real thing um, because how we portray Christ um, is, you know, it's putting specific things in people's minds about what Jesus is like, what his voice sounds like in this case. Um, or we, if we compare it to a contemporary example of The Chosen, um, you know, it's a similar thing. Um, some people you know, like don't want to see them because they're like, I want, you know, I want to imagine the gospel the way it is in my own mind. I don't want a representation, but other people loved it or, or the fun of kind of comparing. These are in a sense, the kind of the chosen of the forties. People had all kinds of opinions. They may have liked them in general and there's certain things they may not have been like, oh, well, I would have done it differently. Or where is she finding that? Or why is she combining those characters or whatever, because there are some things that she had to do for the sake of drama. Part of the fun of the new Wade Annotated Edition is that um, I have side columns with information that from her letters, um, people will write her and say, why did you give Jesus a golden beard? And so then, you know, which is a question I had the first time I read it. I was like, a golden beard, Dorothy. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so she she gets a chance to explain herself. Now, I I not necessarily uh, agree with her answer, but at least 
she she says, well, I was thinking about medieval art and, you know, I have to, as a radio uh, writer, I, you know, I'm, I'm conscious of creating uh, visions of people's heads of like, how can you differentiate between characters? And um, so that's why I did it. But you're right. Jesus probably had dark hair, but that kind of thing. So it's like, oh, okay. Well, at least she wasn't just like, oh, I didn't know. I always thought Jesus had blonde hair. Or something. <laughs> um, or like the case of of Mary Magdalene, who she has a combined, what we call a composite Mary, mm-hmm. Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, and the sinful woman of Luke 7. So Mary Magdalene is portrayed as um, a former dancing girl. That's the the word that Sayers uses because she, she is conscious of the children, so she's not going to use the word prostitute. Um, but she, you know, of like, ooh, someone with a, a kind of dicey past that she's like, at least children will kind of get an idea of something like that. But again, she appeals to church tradition that this is something that's common. Um, a lot of particularly early writers like St. Augustine, um, Gregory the Great, who was um, died in 604. So, I mean, these very early people were saying maybe they were the same people. So she, she says, well, you know, I had to make a, a choice for drama. I can't have all these Marys around. There's just too many Marys. Uh, so I've combined them and that puts me in company with St. Augustine. So that's, uh, that's fine with me. Uh, okay. I want to ask her next question. So Sayers writes, we judge their behavior. That is these biblical figures uh, as though all of them had known with whom they were dealing, uh, referring to Jesus and, and what the meaning of all the events actually was, but they did not know it. And it can be you know, easy for us to forget that as we are reading the Bible, they did not know they were in the Bible. And so we can, <laughs> we can view things, you know, from our great distance um, and look at them through a lens that says, well, how did they not know that? Or why didn't they figure that out? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I, and I wonder, you know, as we, is there an alert for us in this now or something for us to wake up to as we ourselves are participating in this unfolding story. Oh, I love that. Um, and I love the way you say, like, they didn't know they were in the Bible. Uh, Sayers, in her introduction, says that uh, she uses the word stained glass window because she she sort of imagines, like, we we picture these stories, like, stuck, static, you know, as if these people were 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 kind of like, there you are, Jesus, do your thing. And just sort of like setting up the punchline so Jesus can give the joke. Like, nope, that's not the way it was. Um, they were real people. And um, Sayers is very uh, firm on that. I mean, I would say that's definitely one of her goals of the way she's writing the plays is that she wants people to know these are everyday people who encountered Christ in their own way for their own reasons and motives and so that that goes for any you know the people that are coming to him for healing, but the religious leaders. Um, she works really hard to give the background um, of the Roman Empire and what's going on. And so her characterizations of Caiaphas and Pilate, um, I think, are are very important. Like I mean, because she, she includes a lot of things from like Josephus, for instance, other other sources we have from the time of what was actually going on and how much pressure, for instance, was on Caiaphas. And how, um, you know, if if there was a, an overall rebellion by the zealots or other groups, you know, he would have been held responsible. So, you know, so the pressure that's on him that like, I, you know, if something is 
there's going to be some kind of rebellion. I have to stop it for the sake of everyone. So giving that as his motive, like I'm trying to do the best I can for Israel. Um, because if, you know, Rome clamps down, that's the end. That's it for our whole nation. And so that's a very strong motive. I mean, and as an actor, um, that would be a, a wonderful motivation uh, for an actor to to have behind playing Caiaphas, which we don't really, we don't see necessarily all of that in the scripture. You know, sometimes you just read it and you're like, oh, he was just, he was just sort of opposed to Jesus, but he had reasons uh, for being opposed to Jesus. You know, we don't have to think they were good reasons or good enough reasons, um, but he was a real person. He wasn't just, just there to be the baddie, to be the villain. But I like what you say. I mean, does something specific come to mind there when you say it could be instructive for us today? Uh, I think that's a that's an intriguing thing. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Do you have any thoughts? Oh, I don't know. I I just think about, you know, what do we, I guess, acknowledging what we don't know mm-hmm. in, in the present moment that we could look back on or, you know, the future, people in the future will look back on us mm-hmm. and our kind of ignorances and and feeble attempts and um, yeah. I guess it's 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 a cause for humility maybe. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, I like that a lot. You mentioned a couple of characters that you thought she was really successful in portraying. Uh you mentioned mm-hmm. Caiaphas. I also felt that character was really believable. Mm-hmm. Um I'd love to hear you talk about Judas, probably yeah. the most challenging character to depict besides yeah. Jesus, uh-huh. uh, because we have to understand how could Judas live with Jesus and and still betray him. Right. Uh, you mentioned the composite Marys. Uh, there's characters that get added in. And so maybe mm-hmm. the question is, what, what did you, even as you're sort of coming to this as the expert, uh, what did you sort of appreciate? Or was there, are there certain creative decisions that she made in the composition process were really great decisions. And I wonder also mm-hmm. if there are any decisions that she left in the margin that you, you know, have in the margins. They're like, Oh, I, I wish that she would have gone this other direction. Sure. Right. Well, thank you. I'll certainly give you my opinion. Um, but it's, that's what's the, the fun of it, right? Everyone comes to these plays and um, interacts with them and likes different things. Um, yeah. I would say Caiaphas is definitely one of my favorite characters. I feel like it's very well, well-written and researched um, to really give a sense of that. That character of Caiaphas is actually very much influenced by a book called Ronald, uh, by Ronald Gurner called We Crucify, uh, where he, as a teacher, describes how he um, taught a whole year of scripture classes to kind of teenage boys, where they, he assigned them all roles within the Sanhedrin. And then so they had that like identity that that's their point of view. And so then they looked at different stories from the gospels all year and, but looked at it from the point of view of the Sanhedrin and why the Sanhedrin would eventually condemn Jesus to death. And so, um, so, but that it, the book is just so fun because it's written as like business meeting minutes and that mm. kind of thing. And so it's like, either all very businesslike. And uh, so it feels kind of modern in that way too. And Sayers, even borrows that there's a point in in uh, I think it's play 12 where uh, they're they're paying off the the guards who are reporting that that uh, the tomb is empty um saying uh you know no uh no record of this right. payment will the, the appear in the official minutes. record yeah, yeah right yeah yeah <laughs> um so but it's but it's like it's a very lively um portrait so I love that as you say Judas right 
I mean, early on, she even says that, like, I have got to get my brain around how I'm going to portray Judas because he is a, he is a toughie. Um, And before her, I mean, like a lot of, a lot of the, the earlier forms of, of uh, gospel plays that we have, or like the medieval mystery plays, for instance, Judas was always just the pure baddie, Mm -hmm. you know, that he's like, "Ah, ah, ah, here I go sneaking, you know, to portray Jesus. And, uh, and as you say, you think, well, why would Jesus even want that kind of a person? Cause he wasn't a fool. Um, He wouldn't just have someone like, Oh, you just exist in order to betray me. That doesn't seem right either. And so um, Sayers thought a lot about this. Um, and so she really portrays Judas as the most intelligent of her disciples with the idea um, of the, it's kind of an, an ancient dictum that like the one with the greatest possibility has the greatest possibility of falling, you know? So, mm. um, so he is this, he is the smartest, um, but that also means as part of, you know, as part of his characterization, he tends to trust his own intelligence um, he thinks that he understands what's, what all, I mean, he seems to understand more than some of the other disciples, but he comes, he kind of jumps to conclusions, um, in a way that, you know, he begins to, to lose trust in Jesus and trust more in his own understanding mm-hmm. of what's happening. Um, and this becomes important with one of these, um, created characters called Baruch, who is a zealot. Is that, um, Baruch is important because in the gospels it actually we don't see anywhere what who the zealots are what they cared about what they did and so sayers again borrows outside information from josephus and other ancient sources to explain you know what these zealots were doing you know they wanted to overthrow the romans like the gospels don't actually say that we just know that from outside sources um and so so baruch is an example of someone who's kind of a um, you know, man of action, and he's co- coordinating different groups of people, and has a plan. And he he sees Jesus as like, oh, if only he could just be like the figurehead. We could be the brawn behind him. We just need someone who'd be the figurehead. And um, and he says, what a tool! What a tool Jesus would be. Um, mm. And uh, so you know, we have this. He's a kind of dangerous character here, but he interacts a number of times with Judas. Um, and he's kind of the opposite of Judas because Judas is like all brains versus all bronze. And so all brawn. So he sort of, uh, Judas feels a little intimidated by him as a man of action and Baruch kind of jumps to conclusions. And then Judas has to defend himself in a way that kind of disarms Judas and makes him, you know, pushes him toward that doubting of Jesus. So honestly, I think, I mean, I think the way Sayers portrays Judas is um, is very possible. Um, I think it's fairly convincing. I think if Baruch didn't exist in the story, uh, I think actually the character of Judas wouldn't work. So I think mm. they kind of go together um, mm. because of these these instances along the way where, where Baruch shows up and he's kind of the only one that Judas kind of tells the truth to. And, you know, he doesn't give his doubts to Jesus, but Baruch seems to kind of unravel his doubts whenever they, whenever they meet. Baruch is also, he sends a letter to Jesus to kind of offer military support right before the triumphal entry and says, if you want us to come in behind you, there's a war horse in this stable over here. If you don't want our help, there's a donkey over here. Hmm. And you know, of course, Jesus, we know, enters Jerusalem on a donkey. So Sayers makes that up, but that becomes the very important moment where Judas 
knows that Jesus has received some kind of message from Baruch, um, but he doesn't know that Jesus refuses Baruch's help by taking the donkey. He just knows that Baruch was somehow involved with the donkey. And so that's why he decides to go to mm. um, the, the high priest mm. and betray Jesus. Anyway, it's a, it's a very interesting way of portraying the character of Judas. Um, I mean, I like, I think Baruch would be, a, again, another awesome character to play as an actor. <laughs> He's just mm. so, so interesting and kind of scary and dangerous in a way. Um, I think Sayers uses him a little bit to uh, even kind of connect with how people might see the Nazis at the time that she's writing, because, you know, he's talking about like, we just need a figurehead to, you know, march ahead of the party. And to, he keeps using these kinds of words like party um, to describe the zealots in a way that you can imagine, you know, this like big crowd of people that have power that are seeking to overthrow something. So I mean, there's, there's so many, there's so many interesting characters. I really like the, the women, not, I mean, Mary Magdalene is a a wonderful, interesting character, but particularly as we get into the last two plays when the women are at the foot of the cross and um, Easter morning, there's just a lot of beautiful things that Sayers puts in. Like we don't see them in the upper room scene at the sort of the last supper, but the men keep referring to them, like that the women are below that the women are preparing the food. I never Mm. really thought about like, I don't know who prepared the last supper, but the idea of the women being there um, and a part of things and then being there at the foot of the cross and then being there Easter morning and preparing the spices was a beautiful scene of them, like gathering all their things. Uh, John is there. He kind of expresses a wish that he could go with them. And they say, no, you know, no one's going to bother women on a, on an errand of mercy. Um, and then Salome, his mother says, you know, it's always so my son, men make a great bustle in life, but women wind the swaddling bands and the grave bands for all of them. Then they go just, but just the sense of like that they have a very specific role that they're doing. And it's something that the men couldn't do. Um, at this time, I mean, it's within within their own culture of what what is sort of acceptable service and a part of it. But they felt a part of it, and I, I just get that real the sense of like these women were were truly disciples of him and doing service to him in a way that was really beautiful that that the other disciples couldn't. Just a follow up question: mm-hmm. Both Laurel and I listened to a radio adaptation of these uh, in preparation okay. for this. I, I I don't know even which one I listened to now that I look at it, but I listened to a cycle of plays, which didn't include all of the. It was interesting to see the things they left right. out of the mm-hmm. particular. But I, I just wonder: Is there? I don't know. Yes, one that's really better than others. One adaptation that's available. Okay, so that's um, the one that I listened yep, to. Yeah, okay. so that's the nineteen sixty seven World Service adaptation by the BBC. So there are the original plays. Uh, took about 50 to 55 minutes on the air. Um, but the, the 1967 version, <clears throat> excuse me, are about 40 to 43 minutes. So there's about 10 minutes of, of content that is cut out. But Sayers, when she published the scripts, she also included a few other things that had been cut originally too. So they might, even if you were to record just as it's written here, they might be just a little over an hour, mm. um, some of them. So, but they're really great. I I love the recordings. I listen to them a lot, you know, just as mm-hmm. inspiration. But you're right. There are a number of things missing. Uh, I was going to say one of my very favorite other speeches by a woman um, is a speech by the Virgin Mary um, while Jesus is carrying his cross. Are you thinking of the one I... Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's just beautiful. 
It is. And it's so theological, but in such basic language. It's sort of like, uh, you know, an explanation of the what we call the hypostatic union of Christ's divinity mm-hmm. and his humanity together. And she says, I know now what he is and what I am. God is the truth and I am the fact, but Jesus is truth and fact. And you can't understand the truth until it is enfleshed in fact. And so there's just that sense of like, that without, you know, without the, the right theological language for it, that um, that his own mother has sensed that there is this, this difference in him, you know, there is his divine nature and his human nature, and both of them are there. And then that speech ends with, um, uh, this is the, this meaning like Christ carrying his cross is the only thing that has ever really happened that like all of history up to now mm-hmm. is, is God preparing to redeem his people and to sacrifice his son for the sake of, of mm-hmm. humanity. And that, that it's like the, it's the center point or even the only thing that has ever really happened. Um, and I just love that. But that has always been, it was cut in the first version for time and it was cut in the 1967 version. So maybe people think it's too long of a speech or um, too theological of a speech. But anyway, it's that alone, that speech alone is is <laughs> worth reading the actual uh, scripts for. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, there's a letter from Sayers to Derek McCulloch. Uh, in which she discusses her inclusion in the first play, this suggestion of the Hail Mary in the Three Mm -hmm. Kings salutation, uh, to quote her, but only the bit that will please the Catholics without offending the Protestants. She follows this by pointing to the Greek title for Mary, Theotokos, God-bearer. And then uh, she's quoted um, in a letter to James Welch, writing that, quote, the Roman Catholics and the Protestants must do a little giving and taking. So where do you see, where else do you see this? uh, You said walking a thin line (laughs) in your notes Mm -hmm. uh, between Catholic and Protestant sensibilities within these plays. You know, she is writing right for the the Catholic churches in terms of the universal church. So Mm -hmm. um, I imagine that was quite a challenge. And and I wonder where else you see her, yeah, walking that thin line. Yeah. I mean, that's such a good question because it was very important to Sayers. Um, even before writing these plays, she was involved with a project that um, they called the Ecumenical Penguin, um, just because it was going to be a paperback penguin publisher edition mm. of basic theology. And she was very passionate about that because she felt like for people who were unchurched, you know, they didn't understand what actually most Christians had in common. And so she and other people from a number of traditions were excited about this this kind of idea of creating a book that had basic theology and the and the parts of theology that everybody actually agreed on if you you know if you start with just like the Nicene Creed what does that mean who do we actually believe God is as creator who is Jesus Christ why did he come um, what do Christians agree that we believe about him who is the Holy Spirit you know so um, she was very very interested in that. Um, because she felt like people who weren't Christians, um, or, you know, kind of on the fringes, like there was just a lot of confusion, like, well, what's all the difference between all these different denominations? And she felt like we could actually help a lot of people by showing that, um, what are the things that we actually all agree on? Like it's, it's, it's maybe we're maybe not as far apart as, um, as some people think and, and then be able to, you know, and then, uh, on a smaller level, denominations say, well, this is just some of our distinctives. So it's a book that that never came to fruition, but um, we have a lot of letters from her 
about that. And so it's, it's um, definitely part of her point of view, even before this project. So she comes to these plays knowing that, you know, it's a general audience. And so people of all different denominations or, you know, no religious background or people that are even hostile to religion in general are going to be listening to them. And um, so, as you say, that she does, she has a little nod there. Uh, when the three kings come, they, um, you know, they address her as mother of God, um, Theotokos, God bearer. And then they, and they say, hail Mary. And so she, she's very aware that the Catholics would be like, oh, right. <laughs> and then, but it's, but it's not the like, you know, pray for us now and at the hour of our death part, which is what she's saying, not the second part, which would offend the Protestants. Um, so that kind of thing, you know, she's very aware of that. There are other times where uh, I think in play 12, when they're discussing, you know, Jesus hasn't appeared to them in the upper room, but there's this slight discussion about like, wait, but the, you know, but they're saying, well, Peter was supposed to be the head of the church. And then they were, they were like, but the church, what, I thought it was the kingdom we were waiting for. And so she kind of addresses this, like, this is actually a still a live question for, for Christians. Like, where is that? Is, is the church synonymous with the kingdom of God or is there an overlap or is it, they, are they different things? Um, and how does that relate to what Jesus was talking about? in the kingdom of God. So she's very aware of some of those things. Uh, she also got a lot of letters from a variety of people who assumed that she was part of their denomination. So there's a letter from someone saying, I'm Methodist and I can tell that you're Methodist too. And she wrote back and said, well, I'm actually Anglican. Um, but thank you because by the fact that you said that it shows how, you know, how I have, chosen to focus on what are the essentials to Christian faith. So she had something like that. She had one time, kept a couple of years earlier from a different project, but the, the, um, the Catholic newspaper said like, oh, Sayers, she's coming close to following G.K. Chesterton into the arms of Mother Church. <laughs> um, and she uh, was kind of, uh, she had kind of a little snarky reply to that, you know, but she felt like that the reason they're feeling connected to what I'm saying is that I am focusing on the core um, of kind of creedal faith, um, because if you stick close to the creeds, that's how you know that what you're saying is actually Christianity, she said. What would you say is Sayer's lesson to Christian artists? So I've highlighted several quotes from her writing that I'll be sharing with my students. And you mentioned in your biography that you're a creative artist in addition to being a scholar. So I wonder what you've taken to heart as a maker yourself. Yeah, I mean, I have found these plays to be very uh, inspiring. I, While I was doing my PhD research on these plays, I also wrote an album of music about women in the Gospels. So there are some direct connections. And sometimes, like I specifically made a different choice in my song. Like, for instance, I have a separate song for Mary uh, Magdalene and Mary Bethany. Um, so some of them are like that. But some of them are just inspirations from, um, you know, a phrase or something about a character. So I found them just inspiring in that. But I, I think the whole... I don't know the whole thing of to not not be afraid to sort of explore the biblical text in in a creative way. You know, there's there's room for a lot of of different ways to portray them, whether it be on stage or in visual art or in music or poetry. We we could use a lot more of that kind of engagement because there are you know people who who would 
uh, read a poem who might not, you know, read a PhD dissertation mm-hmm. <laughs> about about Christology or something, but yet they would be inspired by that and it would, and it would um, strengthen their faith, but also, you know, in, even just intellectually help them discover something that they might not um, encounter in another form. Uh, even just to, to use Sayers, she was very big on this in her, her book, um, The Mind of the Maker. Um, she talks about how, because God is Trinity, um, that there's this, and God is creator, that we, we create in the pattern of of the Trinity too, that that she she sees this kind of Trinitarian stamp on the whole whole universe that we have an idea and then we we work on it and it comes to life through in time, just like Christ came into time, became human um, to show us who God was, and then um, and then there's sort of the ongoing life of the work of art. So um, she would say that because we are created by God and we're made in his image that we also are creators. So the way we interact with ideas and and feelings and, and even, you know, material like the gospels can be a wonderful way to image God. You know, that's part of what he made us to do to explore creatively. Now we, you know, there might be a whole range of abilities um, in that some art might be better than others, but just that process of of creating art in different genres can be a way of exploring ideas and, and sharing ideas and creating more and more discussion. And in the case of plays like this, um, you know, encountering Jesus Christ. The book is The Man Born to be King uh, by Dorothy Sayers. This is a new Wade annotated edition of this book uh, published in the 80th anniversary, I guess, the 80th year after its initial publication. Our guest is the editor, Dr. Catherine Ware. And Dr. Ware, we thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us on the In All Things podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andrea Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org, or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.